You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 71, The Munich Agreement Part 3, The Summer of 1938. This week, a big thank you goes out to Stephen, Charles, and Michael for choosing to support the podcast on Patreon, where they get access to special member-only episodes roughly every month, like the upcoming episode in which we take a deep dive into British diplomatic communications during the May Crisis that we discussed in Episode 70. If that sounds interesting to you, head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com members to find out more. After the events of May and the Phantom Invasion and Czechoslovakian mobilization, the overall vibe in the area was tense, to say the least. It also had a real effect on many governmental ministers all over Europe, as for the first time in 20 years they had been pushed to what felt like the brink of a European-wide war. The realization that they had been so close caused an increased emphasis on ensuring that it never happened again. Now, the key was that there were a lot of different opinions on how best to make sure that it never happened again. There were some who believed that the best path was to resist Germany more openly, to make it clear that if they continued down their path, they would be met with a united Europe that would stand against them. The other path would become more popular, and it was not one of conflict, but of compromise. For example, on June 3rd, the Times in London would publish an article arguing that the best possible option was a plebiscite in the Sudeten areas of Czechoslovakia, so that they could choose either to join Germany or to stay where they were. This was really an example of what was at the time the most extreme viewpoint, and what would develop over the summer was simply a renewed push for negotiations between Hinlein, the Sudeten German party, and Prague. There would be direct efforts to facilitate these negotiations, one of which was the Runciman mission that we will discuss shortly. We will then look at the events of August 1938, which would lead into the direct negotiations that would be such an important part of September. Over the course of June and July, negotiations in Prague continued between the government and the Sudeten Germans. One of the real sticking points was not even the question of autonomy, which had been a key point in previous talks but instead the specific political boundaries of the territories that would be given such autonomy. The government put forward a plan whereby three new diets would be set up that would have autonomy over three new provinces, uh, Bohemia, Moravia, and Silesia, which were all areas of western Czechoslovakia. This was unacceptable to Henlein and the Germans, not because they disliked the concept of full autonomy, 
but because they were insistent that whatever political units were created had to be mapped out in such a way that the Sudeten Germans held a massive majority at the polls. While the three new provinces, you know, made sense, you know, they followed roughly historical boundaries, they, they made sense on a map, they did not provide the kind of dominance for the Germans that they wanted, and so they rejected it. They did not want logical political boundaries. They wanted bits and pieces carved out that met their specific demographic requirements. While these discussions continued, pressure from the British government began to increase, as they wanted further concessions from the government in Prague. Meanwhile, Hinlein held strong to his detailed proposal of early June, in which he laid down specific boundaries for the new autonomous territory, which was structured around those clear racial boundaries, which would give the new Sudetenland the structure of a fully independent German state. Eventually, this was accepted as the starting point for further discussions, but only after there were direct threats from London on the government in Prague stating that if they did not enter into more negotiations with the German proposals as a basis, the offer and the rejection would be fully publicized. This was seen as a major threat because throughout the entire process, the government wanted to appear to be very open to negotiations, and they did not want the discussions to be publicized out of fear that it would cause problems in other territories within Czechoslovakia. However, by the middle of July, it was clear that the negotiations really were not going anywhere productive. It would be at this point in late July that the British government decided that it was time to get more directly involved. To do so, they would send an official representative of the British government, Lord Runciman, who had formerly been a member of the cabinet and was a well-known shipping magnate. The announcement of the dispatch of Runciman and a team of British negotiators was made in the House of Commons on July 26th. During his speech, Chamberlain gave some, I'm going to call them incredibly optimistic sort of guesses about what he believed the mission could accomplish, which in many ways ignored the actual reality of the situation. As with about every other conversation in the Commons during this period and most of the time in general, this prompted a wide-ranging discussion on the course of British actions related to Czechoslovakia, which you can read online if you desire, it's all out there. There were many MPs who wanted to be on the record saying their part, and I won't bore you with all of them, because a lot of it kind of feels like they, they just want to be on the record about something. But I will bring forward parts of what Labour MP Josiah Wedgwood would say in response to um, Chamberlain's announcement. It would function as a kind of a general rebuttal of appeasement, which was a constant refrain in the Commons during these events from various people. But I think he does a pretty good job in sort of summarizing all the bits and pieces. Quote, Anyone who has known Lord Runciman as long as I have will be delighted that he has been selected for this post. Indeed, I wish him so well that I will say nothing on earth in his uh, in disfavor. But I cannot congratulate the government upon this particular method of achieving peace. It savors too much of the squeezes which the government has applied to various other countries in the interest of peace. We squoze Abyssinia. If you prefer the Oxford accent, the squeeze was successfully applied to his by His Majesty's government to Abyssinia, of course entirely in the interests of peace and of the dictators. For the last two years, the same squeeze has been applied to Spain, of course in the interest of peace, but also, as it happens, in the interests of the dictators. Now again, the argument that is in the interests of peace, we are beginning to squeeze Czechoslovakia. We are urging them to moderation in the face of German demands, and moderation means conceding some of the German demands. And I see that in the solutions proposed for the Czechoslovakian problem, 
is the usual normal method of having autonomous areas for the Sudeten Germans. What is the excuse for enabling the Nazi rule to be extended all around the frontiers of Czechoslovakia? The excuse is, as ever, that it is to be done in the interests of peace. I tell this house it is in the interests of war, inevitable war, and a war that we shall not be able to win. Every time you sacrifice one of your potential allies to this pathetic desire to appease the tyrants, you merely bring nearer and make more inevitable that war which you pretend to be trying to avoid. At present, Czechoslovakia has a natural rugged frontier on three sides of her, and that frontier is armed. Cut off that Sudeten area from Czechoslovakia, and you put Germany across the frontier up against a perfectly easy advance to Prague. End quote. Obviously, that speech it continues on for, for some time, as most of them do. But I thought just that little piece did a really good job of kind of uh, encapsulating the other views in British politics at this time. You know, I'll be talking a lot about Chamberlain and and Halifax and the people who are really pushing for appeasement over the next few episodes, as they would be in control during this period. But but I thought that speech by uh, Wedgwood did a pretty good job of of displaying what other conversations were happening in Britain at this time and and the arguments they were making on, on why appeasement was not the correct choice. Now back to the Runciman mission, once it occurred, it would not be a stunning success, which should not surprise anyone. Just because a British representative was now present in the discussions did not remove any of the many problems and challenges that they had to overcome. Introducing a British mission, which was in all reality not even fully connected to the situation, solved none of the problems, and and in fact it made some of them worse. Part of the problem was a complete misunderstanding about the personalities involved and the relationship of the parties. For example, one idea provided by the British mission was for Henlein, who was believed to obviously be a moderate and honest fellow, to be sent to Berlin to negotiate with Hitler. Needless to say, the Runciman mission achieved uh, essentially nothing. While most of the focus was on events in Czechoslovakia, there were many other discussions that would occur between other nations as well. For example, on August 22nd, Hitler would spend two days watching naval maneuvers, and he would invite the Hungarian regent, Admiral Miklos Horthy, and the Hungarian Prime Minister, Bela Imredi, to join him. This was so that Hitler could discuss the possibility of the two nations launching a joint military invasion of Czechoslovakia in the near future. Hungary had many of the same disagreements with Czechoslovakia that Germany did, and after the First World War, a good number of ethnic Hungarians had been included in the Czechoslovak state. Hitler hoped to play on these animosities to get Hungary to join in an invasion, which would cause some extreme problems for the Czechoslovak military. The Hungarians were overall very hesitant to agree to anything, because in some ways they were in an even worse position than Germany was. They were surrounded by nations that had, for the previous 17 years, been members of the Little Entente, an alliance specifically created to contain any possible Hungarian expansion. The presence of Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, and Romania within that alliance meant that Hungary was surrounded by enemies, and if troops were concentrated in the north against Czechoslovakia, it was very likely that the others would take advantage of the situation. Hitler was very disappointed that he could not convince Horthy and the Hungarians to join in German aggression, but there was little more that he could do, and it certainly did not deter him from planning that invasion to happen in the next several months. Another player in the events around May and then for the rest of 1938 was France, which we've not really discussed very much of over the last few episodes. One of the reasons for this was because during this period, the French government was not really in a position to influence events in a major way. They certainly knew what was happening and they were in communication with all the governments, but they weren't really leading events. 
During the May crisis, they had made statements that pointed to their desire to honor their treaty commitments to Czechoslovakia if Germany attacked. In conversations with Halifax, Daladay would say, quote, France's treaty obligations are clear and inevitable. There wasn't a single one of his fellow citizens who would readily betray them. On the heels of the non-event of the May crisis, France drew many of the same conclusions that Britain did, mainly that the German invasion had been prevented by Western resolve. France was also influenced during this period by the commonly held belief that Germany was in a perpetual state of near-economic collapse, and that this economic collapse would very rapidly come to pass if war began. When the British started taking a definitive lead with actions like the Runciman mission, the French were happy to wait for it to come to a conclusion. This bought more time and allowed things to develop, and it would not be until the middle of September that the French began to take a more, more than a passive role in events. Unfortunately, they would find themselves in an almost entirely no-win scenario. They were very set into a path where it was essential that they work very closely with the British. But to do so, they were forced, over the months of 1938, to work with the British policy of appeasement, which had devastating effects for French support in Central Europe. Jumping ahead a bit here, but here is a statement from Romanian Minister Adrian Thierry after the Munich Agreement would be signed in September. Quote, We must not hide the fact that since the Munich Agreement, Romanian opinion is very much divided regarding France. In private conversations, those with left-wing ideas say that our influence has ceased in Central Europe and they attack us violently, while extreme right-wing elements proclaim that by calling for a close collaboration between Romania and the Reich, they are backing a policy that reflects the country's true interests. These would be the types of consequences of French actions in 1938, even though it's challenging to find convincing arguments for, for why they should have pushed for a different path or even you know, viable paths for them to go down during this period. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Negotiations continued on through July and into August, and then for most of August as well. Runciman moved into position of firmly and voraciously putting more and more pressure on the government to continue to give in to Sudeten German demands. Eventually, Banesh and others had to just bow to this pressure, or at least they felt they had to, and so more concessions were made. This would result in the third plan, which was introduced on August 24th. 
The plan included further compromises with the demands previously put forward by Henlein and the Sudeten German party, but there was still a problem, though, and something that had nothing to do with the Czechoslovak government. And that was the fact that Henlein and his direct deputy, Karl Hermann Frank, were under clear instructions to not agree to anything. In fact, Frank was going to be put in charge, through direct orders from Hitler, of a campaign of incidents that would begin that would cause more chaos and make the government in Prague far less likely to make more concessions and come closer to an agreement. This kind of chaos and this, you know, inability to come to an agreement was an important part of the Case Green plan, as it was meant to prevent the kind of stability that was really needed, you know, if negotiations were going to continue and then if the Czechoslovak government was able to repel a German invasion. The end goal was for there to be one final incident immediately before the start of Case Green, which would be assisted by German SA officers that would move across the border. There, they would meet up with Sudeten German agitators, and they would take actions that would give the Germans a firm excuse to move into the country. You know, they they would start essentially almost like a civil war. At the same time, there were also plans to move groups of Sudeten Germans into Germany so that they could be formed into a unit of the German invasion forces for publicity reasons. Over the summer, information about some of these plans began to also reach external parties. For example, the British were able to obtain another set of details in early July of what the German plans were. There were also reports that Germany was quietly calling up more reservists and then also canceling all leave during the month of August to allow for a far greater state of readiness. The British ambassador in Berlin would also report that some of the German pilots that had been in Spain were being recalled specifically so that they were available to Luftwaffe squadrons that would take part in the invasion. His name was Henderson, and he would become more and more urgent in his appeals for action to the government in London. For example, on August 18th, he would state that he was hearing from a German source that war was almost certainly going to happen unless the British decisively intervened. There was also another source of information coming into London, and this was from Ewald von Kleist Schimsen, or simply Kleist. Kleist was a German lawyer who was not the largest fan of Hitler, to to put it mildly. During August, he would be in communication with the British diplomat Vanzetart, and, and would even travel to London. He was able to pass information to the British government. For example, he would respond to Vanzetart's question of the date for a possible invasion as, quote, after the 27th of September, it will be too late. He was also working closely with General Beck during this period, during his attempts to get the German army to resist Hitler's push towards war. Kleist's hope was that he could get a firm commitment and open statement from the British government that any German invasion of Czechoslovakia would result in Britain declaring war. His hope was that this information would be able to be able to be used to convince others within Germany to more firmly resist and perhaps even openly revolt against Hitler's policies. This would be the goal of Kleist's visit to London, for which Kleist was provided with a fake identity and passport, as well as British money for the trip. During his visit, he would chat with several British politicians, most famously Churchill, who apparently was very impressed with the conversation. Overall, the visit would be a failure, though. The British government of August was in no mood to launch into any kind of preventative war or even to seriously threaten it, regardless of what possible events in the future it might maybe prevent. 
There were also several influential British leaders, including Chamberlain himself, who had decided that Kleist was simply not accurate in his portrayal of German politics at the time. Kleist was attempting to make the British believe that the problem with Germany was Hitler, and that if he was removed or seriously threatened, Germany would move decisively away from war. This basic assumption was not supported by men like Chamberlain, Halifax, and Henderson, who still believed that Hitler could be the vector through which peace was achieved. Kleist's failure to to get an open declaration from the British government did not mean that other attempts to kind of, you know, influence German policy would not continue. One would be planned by Beck's replacement as chief of uh, of the army general staff, Franz Halder. Halder was a 54-year-old Bavarian who came from a multi-generational military family. There were some problems, though, because Halder did not actually have any troops under his direct command as chief of the army general staff. This was a problem because it was only really the army that could lead any kind of revolt against Hitler's leadership. Every other organization and group that might have been in a position to do so simply, honestly, no longer existed. So Halder, if if he wanted to lead some sort of, of revolt, had to find men who had positions of command that could be used for a very few important operations in the case of a military coup. These could be found, you know, they did exist, and there were discussions with several such critical commanders. General Erwin von Witzebin, the commander of the troops that were in and around Berlin, obviously important. General Count Erich von Brockdorf Olefeld, who commanded the Potsdam garrison. And then General Erich Hoppner, who commanded an armored division that was positioned in Thuringia, which would act as a blocking force against SS troops that would probably try to move in from Munich. There was one incredibly important, or at least they believed it was incredibly important, part of this plan, as it was at the end of August when it was in its most advanced state, that they just couldn't make happen. And that was that they believed that a coup could only happen after Hitler had given the final orders to invade Czechoslovakia. This was mandatory because they planned to bring him before a German court with the charge that he was about to recklessly throw Germany into another war. Now, to get there, he had to actually, you know, order that war first. So they needed the final invasion order to be given, while at the same time, there were efforts in London and Paris to ensure that that order was never given and would never even come close to being given. On August 26th, Henderson was recalled to London for in-person discussions with the cabinet that would occur on August 30th. Henderson was firmly in support of appeasement uh, by this point, and he believed that any real threats from Britain would only make war more likely. Chamberlain would start the meeting on August 30th by apologizing for interrupting everybody's summer holidays, which the British government was in the middle of. However, he believed that it was important enough for them to come together to discuss events. Halifax would take the lead in explaining what he saw as the various scenarios that the British now found themselves in based upon German actions. The first was that Hitler and Germany was set on war due both to their territorial ambitions and the, in the embarrassment of May. If the cabinet believed that this was the case, then, quote, the only deterrent which would be likely to be effective would be an announcement that if Germany invaded Czechoslovakia, we should declare war on her, end quote. Halifax would end his report by asking those in the meeting if they believed that it was justifiable to, quote, fight a certain war now in order to forestall a possible war later, end quote. Chamberlain would follow up by saying, quote, 
No state, certainly no democratic state, ought to make a threat of war unless it is both ready to carry it out and prepared to do so. This was a sound maxim. End quote. I don't think there should be too much argument at that conclusion, you know, a nation should only really threaten war if they're ready to follow through. The conversation among the cabinet went on for, for almost three hours, and there would be some criticisms levied against other people later on. You know, Henderson would get sort of um, criticized later because he was so anxious and then that he was concerned about, you know, possible actions from the Germans instead of thinking about the bigger picture. No real decisions were made during this meeting, and certainly the cabinet was not closer to offering any kind of definitive statement to Germany to warn it away from aggression. They they were still quite divided. Also, the meeting was in no way secret. Now, Chamberlain had made sure that it was well known that Henderson was being recalled, and in fact, the very next morning, the newspapers of London ran headlines that involved details of the meeting and that Henderson had been recalled to take part in it. Now, this was done for a purpose. It showed that the British government was taking things very seriously, and it also threatened an escalation, even if the escalation did not actually happen. The Daily Express the next day would run the headline, There will be no war. There will be no European war. Why? Because the decision of peace and war depends on one man, the German Fuhrer, and he will not be responsible for making war at present. End quote. While the meeting of August 30th would not result in definitive action from London, there were already other conversations that were occurring that would lead to one of the most famous events of 1938, Chamberlain's personal visits with Hitler, which we will begin to discuss next episode.